Welcome to the St George's Leeds Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy the talk. So what does it mean to be made for love? I saw this uh, post on social media recently that I'm going to share with you here. Just have a little read of that and I'll read it to us. If anyone has had to prove themselves online. We thought it was our ability to love that made us human, but it turns out it was actually our ability to select each image containing a boat. Has anyone had to do that? Has anyone had to do that recently? Yes. Um, One of my favorite comedians has a joke about this saying, you know, we spend most of our days online telling a robot we are not a robot. What is that about? And we've been talking about love in the past couple of years, uh, while I've been here as well in St. George's, thinking about what's love got to do with it a little while ago. You might still have the songs in your head from that series. But this is especially resonant to us as we look at our new screens this week, as we see some world leaders sitting around the table with people and food, and some sitting at a distance. And also it's resonant for us as we recover into intentional community again, in person as and when we can be, uh, moving on from the isolation of COVID. And we again are spending time in Genesis 1 and 2. And uh, Josh has mentioned previously in our, in our series that as we look at Genesis 1 and 2, we're not um, ultimately looking at the, uh, the how of being human or how the world was made We're looking at more of a a macro why of the universe. We're looking at our origin stories in terms of our identity, in terms of who we are and our purpose, rather than just at principles. And it's all worked out in relationship, in the realness of life with God. We think about who are we, and particularly in Genesis, we see that through our relationships to plants and animals and spiritual beings, to God and the created order and one another. And it was likely written, the Genesis narratives, as a counter-narrative to others around at the time in the ancient Near East, but also uh, addressed to a people. Genesis 1 was probably addressed to exiles in Babylon, and they needed to know that in the midst of persecution, um, of people lording it over themselves, where was God? Was God still Lord? Was God still ruling? So it really speaks as a practical, pastoral, uh, theological uh, answer into why are we and who is God? What is our purpose? So into this, we have uh, this truth as we're made for relationship, made for love, that all human beings are made in the image of God. We're going to explore that for a little while together. And we see that in our passage. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them earlier in our passage. And when we look to Genesis, we want to uh, see what the purpose and the destiny we see in there uh, what Genesis has for us in this, um, this true story, if you like, of the, the why of human beings with God. And you might think, well, nowadays in our culture, and particularly in the West, everyone having equal dignity, equal worth, uh, the idea of human rights, 
feels very instinctive to us. But I want to remind us today that that wasn't always the case. And in lots of other ancient Near Eastern uh, creation stories, uh, this was a radical claim, the claim of Genesis. Because usually in those other many creation stories, um, there was a claim of one special individual as being made in the image of God, probably the king, the ruler, and that all other people, the normal people, are lesser than in that narrative. In Genesis, we see the radical claim and truth that all human beings, rich or poor, male or female, which was radical in that patriarchal culture, uh, young and old, were made in the image of God. That men and women together, that the whole of humanity was made to reflect something of the image of God into the world. And to work together with God to steward and tend the earth. Um, and that's really significant. And we, I think nowadays we have this idea that human rights are really obvious. Um, in the American Constitution we hear that, you know, it's evident that all men are created equal. But that wasn't always evident. And the ancient cultures of the Romans and the Greeks was a brutal place to be a human. The Christian revolution spoke into this narrative that was saying it's a survival of the fittest, that status and wealth and health are the things that prove your worth in the world. And otherwise, you can be disregarded, that we can disregard another human being. So as we look to this why, to this identity story, we have to remember that this is unusual and distinctive and that all human beings are made in the image of God out of the love, the overflow of love of the Trinity to bear the image of God in the world. And so um, all human persons stand in solidarity before God, but humanity is also this community, male and female. No one person is the full image of God alone. Only in community of humankind is God reflected. Uh, David mentioned the, um, the Lent theme of the Church of England um, this year. And our Lent book that we've recommended is Embracing Justice by Isabel Hamley. And she talks about justice rooted in Genesis 1 and 2. And this idea of treating others as human beings in the image of God being so distinctive, even though it feels normal to us. But it feels normal to us often in our culture without reference to a creator. So we've kind of gone past that thing of having reference to a creator. Oh, it's obvious that we should treat everyone equally. It's like, is it? Because we don't always. And why should we? Without God, without a loving creator... Some of the logic disappears. And because of that um, image of God, Isabel Hamley says, treating every other human being as made in the image of God and fundamentally worthy of respect, dignity, and equality is the very minimum, the starting point in human relationships. We are made to love, and we see that because we are made to be in community. 
So it's good to remember to tether that understanding to our knowledge of the revelation that we have been created and that our creator God has made human beings in his image. We also see in this passage that human beings thrive in relationships of difference and dignity. And we see this amazing passage um, in 2.18 where it says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And we see this in this zoomed up account in Genesis 2 of humanity, of the origins of humanity and our identity and our purpose. Creation is deemed good by God as whole and complete and as it should be. But when we zoom in, we see that one human being alone, even in relationship with God, is not good. That's rich theological language there in Genesis. It's not just like, oh, it's good. It's like good as in whole and right and shalom. And to be in isolation is not good. And God provides a helper, a companion suitable for the man. Not someone um, that he was going to have control over or have to steward and tend like they did with the rest of creation, but someone who was like him that he could recognize as like him but different and that he would work together with to tend and steward the earth and be in relationship with God. And we see that man... um, names all the other animals and goes through but doesn't find a suitable helper. So the Lord God um, causes the man to fall into a deep sleep in this narrative. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib, from the man. And he brought her to the man. And we see that this wonderful recognition, this cry of recognition, finally, here is someone that I can relate to on the same level. And um, my mum has dogs and she trains dogs to be assistance dogs. And you often hear the, the phrase, uh, dogs are a man's best friend. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, I don't know if there are cat people and dog people in the room. I'm not saying that pets aren't wonderful. And we are made to be in relationship with animals and the created world as well. Um, but I sometimes think, yeah, I just... I also think human beings are made to be best friends with one another. And I always think it's a shame on those TV shows where people have got to the point um, where they don't have the human relationships around them and they think, I'm going to get a pet. Now, that is a good thing, if you see what I mean. But isn't it a shame that that's the reason for going to seek other forms of relationship is that the human relationships aren't there around them. That's not good in the eyes of Genesis. One um, commentator says, none of the known elements around the man will do. There must be a newness. The good news of this episode is that the well-being of the man requires a fresh, creative act of God. And now these two creatures of surprise, of newness, belong together. The place of the garden is for this covenanted human community of solidarity, trust, and well-being. They are in covenant. The garden exists as a context for this human community. Again, Isabel Hamley in her book says, a single human with no difference and no other to interact with 
is lonely. A loneliness not even a divine presence can remedy. Often we talk about God being enough for us. And I'm not saying that his grace isn't sufficient. I'm not saying that his presence doesn't always go with us. But we are made for more. Our existence in this world is not supposed to be purely vertical. It's supposed to be horizontal with human community. We live in an incredibly individualistic uh, society now, and lots of the things around us is designed to get us self-sufficient. And sometimes we even think that about our faith. If I can just trust in God, then it'll work out. And again, trusting in God is good, but more often than not, that looks like trusting in God in community, praying with one another, praying for healing, talking things through, discerning the wisdom of a community. Being alone is not good. So we see this set up in Genesis, but it's important to see Genesis 2 and 3 in this context as um, a full narrative. Often we see this Genesis 3 as this one point of fall, and it is, but it's in the context of the setup of God for human relationships. So we see, following on this as you read um, this narrative, that human relationships are fractured by sin. That amidst the freedom that, hum- uh, that God provides humanity, there is this possibility for humans to decide that they want to live for themselves and be their own king and disregard the reference to their creator. Everything is set up for them in the garden for their well-being, their flourishing. As Josh talked about, there is one prohibition that is to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because to do that is to strike away an independence from God and to decide for themselves uh, who don't really have their best interest at heart because they have their self-interest at heart, what is good and what is right and wrong. And you can read on in that and see the fractured relationship, see the blame that happens Immediately, and there's a you know, joke about it, immediately God says, what have you done to the man? And the man says, well, the woman that you put in here with me, which is like, I don't know if you've ever heard a couple arguing, but you know, it happens. And then you talk to the woman, the woman says, well, the thing that snake said or you said, and there's all this blame and fracture. And we see the consequences of this sin, of this independence rather than interdependence in all relationships. And I've put a few up on the next slide. We see honor and mutual respect turn to hierarchy. This cooperation, this beautiful tending of the earth and stewardship turns to competition. Confidence turns to shame before one another. Partnership to blame. Care for creation to carelessness. Interdependence to independence. And community to isolation. And you might see some of that in our world now. We see that And our heart breaks as God's heart does. But if this is where it led us, and I encourage you to read from Genesis 3 onwards and see the fractured relationships, we would be in despair. But we know throughout the whole story of the Old Testament and ultimately in Jesus that God is not a God of isolation, is not a God that leaves us to suffer the consequences of our own actions, but pursues us in love, that the Trinity God can't help but pursue us in mercy and righteousness and reconciliation. 
I was talking to one of our interns this week, and we were talking about the Old Testament and the kind of idea of an angry God. We were saying, but it, as soon as you read the narrative and you just get the whole story, you see again and again God is this loving parent, this patient God, and constantly human beings go, no, thank you, to the offer of reconciliation. If you do this, you'll live. If you do this, these are the consequences. God is patient and kind and merciful. And ultimately, we see this in the risky, radical love of Jesus, God's word in flesh come in person. And God comes and reconciles us, reconciles all our relationships in Christ to God, the creator, to creation, and to one another. Jesus was the new Adam showing us what it was to live in reference to and relationship to God But Jesus also had human relationships. Sometimes we think about what he did on the cross um, in the abstract, but we see Jesus' life, and he had 12 best mates. He had friends that betrayed him. He had wonderful relationships with men and women. He was single. He didn't need to be married to be fulfilled. He showed us what that was like. He wept at the death of a friend. He spent, close ta- uh, close, he spent time with close friends in their homes, relying on their hospitality, not as a transactional relationship, but one of love and mutual appreciation. And he called us friends rather than servants because we know our Father's business. And in the kingdom of God, um, as we are forgiven and freed by the work of the cross, And we are empowered by the Holy Spirit in the resurrection. We see the consequences of our independent streak reversed in the kingdom of God. There is a way, a person, a relationship that reconciles all other relationships. And then the best way of living is when all of our relationships include a third person, include the creator to guide us, to show us how it's done to remind us that we are not in competition. So in the kingdom of God, on the next slide, I've just um, flipped those things. And this is the good news, because we can look around our world and go, oh my goodness, we have messed up. But we're here today because of Jesus, because the spirit has been poured out to turn hierarchy back to honor, to remove competition and have us cooperate with one another to turn shame to confidence in our salvation, in our forgiveness, blame to partnership, carelessness to care for creation, independence to interdependence. We need one another. And from being isolated to community. God's people should look different, but we should honor one another. And we're going to look next week, going to chat to some people and hear this played out a little bit. But to say, even as I've talked about this, it can feel abstract. And maybe there's a time and a place sometimes as we gather together to think about these things through before we talk it in small groups, before we live it out. But you will know, even as you think about the relationships that you are part of, who you are connected to in the church and beyond, that relationships being made for love is inherently messy. Relationship is intentional, but it's hard. It's long-term. It's covenantal. It's commitment. 
This week I was reading Acts 15 when um, the Spirit is being poured out on the Gentiles in the church. But in Acts 15 there are two sharp disagreements. One of them is resolved and ends up with Gentiles being included in the church. One of them results in two brothers in Christ separating and God using it for mission but it being painful in the meantime. Life is real. But what is the way of love that we are called to? And I invite us, as I um, land here, to ponder this and to go away and to study this for ourselves. The way of relationships is love, God's self-sacrificial love for the other. The kind of love that God showed us, not primarily romantic love or lust, something that fulfills us and makes us happy temporarily. But love in person in Jesus lived out between us in a community that is a highly unlikely, unpredictable family of people that would not know each other were it not for Jesus. So as I close, and in a minute, Lizzie will just lead us in waiting on the Spirit. Um, I invite you to stand, and I'm just going to read this passage, 1 Corinthians 13. Who's heard this at a wedding? Who knows that this is not primarily about romantic love? Married couples get all the fun of this passage. It's for the whole church. I wonder if we might read it out together. This is the way of love. Uh, Tom Wright says, this is our destiny, this kind of love. Because this is the love that's reflected in heaven. Let's go back one to uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Thank you. Let's read this together slowly. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Where our independence has got in the way of community and interdependence, let's ask God now to renew that, to change that, to reconcile us and to be seeing those opportunities even this week and even today where we can live as God has invited us to in Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the St George's Lead Sermon Podcast. For more talks or information, visit stgs.org.uk.